The neuroscience of spirituality and religious experience is a fascinating subject. In this episode, I interview Dr. Andrew Newberg about the brain, spirituality, and religion. Even if you're not particularly spiritual, or if you, like me, don't believe in God, spirits, the soul, or the afterlife, it's still fascinating to understand that the brain is naturally wired for profound experiences and the effect they have on our health and well-being. In this episode, we primarily discuss Dr. Newberg's 2012 teaching company course, The Spiritual Brain. Andrew Newberg is currently the research director at the Marcus Institute of Integrative Health at Thomas Jefferson University and Hospital in Philadelphia. He's a professor in the Department of Integrative Medicine and Nutritional Sciences with a secondary appointment in the Department of Radiology at Thomas Jefferson University. He is board certified in internal medicine and in nuclear medicine. He has actively pursued a number of neuroimaging research projects, which have included the study of aging and dementia and epilepsy and other neurologic and psychiatric disorders. Dr. Newberg has been particularly involved in the study of mystical and religious experiences, a field referred to as neurotheology. He's published over 250 peer-reviewed articles and chapters on brain function, brain imaging, and the study of religious and mystical experiences. He's published 12 books, which have been translated into 17 different languages. He was listed as one of the 30 most influential neuroscientists alive today by the Online Psychology Degree Guide. All right, well, without further ado, I give you my conversation with Dr. Andrew Newberg. All right, well... Um... I will have uh, read your your full bio for the audience, um, but maybe you can just give a little bit of background on why you decided to study the brain and religion and spirituality. Sure. Um, well, I, I think a lot of it really goes back to when I was a kid. Um, I was always very fascinated by um, the issues that came up with me when I was kind of, you know, looking at the world and and wondering why there were different religions, different political parties and so forth. To me, I sort of felt like, well, if we're all looking at the same world, how come we don't all have the same conclusions? And uh, and I realized, well, the, the starting point has to be the human brain, because that's what ultimately is taking in all the information out there in the world and processing it and using our emotions and thoughts and things like that. Uh, but, um, as I, so as I studied the brain and as I learned more and more about how the brain worked, uh, I realized that there were certain limitations that science had in terms of trying to understand some of these big questions about consciousness and things like that. Uh, and, uh, and realized that it was important to take into consideration other perspectives like philosophical perspectives or spiritual perspectives. And, uh, and as I started to study those approaches, um, to me, this whole sort of process, this whole journey became much more contemplative. Um, it became very, uh, you know, I spent a lot of time really thinking about this issue about what is sort of the, I guess the big question, you know, what's the nature of reality and how do we know it? And, um, and then finally, when I was in medical school, I had the very good fortune of working with two wonderful mentors, one who was in the, the world of brain imaging, who taught me about uh, doing functional brain imaging. And we did studies on very traditional stuff like Alzheimer's disease and Parkinson's and depression and things like that. 
Uh, and then I also met a, a, a second mentor who was a psychiatrist at, at, uh, at the University of Pennsylvania, where I was in medical school. Mm. And uh, and we began to and he had been exploring the questions about the relationship between spirituality or religion and the brain, um, really dating back to the 1970s. So all of this happened back in like the early 1990s. And um, we started thinking about the parts of the brain that are involved in religious and spiritual practices and beliefs and so forth. And then finally, as I like to say, you know, the sort of, you know, the proverbial light bulb went off and, and I said, well, wait, if we're using brain scans to look at Alzheimer's and depression, why can't we use it to look at religion and spirituality? And uh, and that was really what kind of launched us into into this sort of broader world of neurotheology and, and trying to understand the relationship between the brain and our religious and spiritual selves. And um, and it, it, it really is, at least in my view, I, I know we'll talk about this in more detail, but um, it, it really is a kind of combined scientific as well as spiritual journey. It's a mm. it's a path that kind of requires both perspectives. And uh, and so for me, it's just the continuation of those uh, very basic questions that I asked many, many years ago as a kid and still trying to kind of figure it out. So uh, that's really what has kind of led me to to where I am today and, and continuing to explore these kinds of questions. Wow, that's it's a really interesting journey really really cool uh synthesis of those two different areas um well uh as you mentioned you you study the the brain and the neuroscience of of spirituality and <clears throat> among other things but uh spirituality and, and religious practices are something you've you've studied from a neuroscientific perspective um and uh, i'm wondering if you can uh, define those terms what does it mean uh, how could how would you define spiritual or religious? So uh, uh, the, the the overall field, as I mentioned, we I usually refer to as neurotheology, and uh, of course there are other possible names for that as well. But um, uh, but part of what um, that's really all about is studying that relationship between the brain and our religious and spiritual selves. But uh, about 10 years ago, I wrote a book called Principles of Neurotheology. And, and one of the first chapters is really about definitions. And there's, you know, uh, it's very important to think about the definitions for a whole array of concepts. And you mentioned the first two, obviously, religion and spirituality, uh, but soul, spirit, God, you know, all there's a lot of different possible uh uh, types of definitions that we should think about, but uh, and and to a certain extent, um, you know, especially when it comes to any of these definitions, it's it's always important for each person. So every every listener, uh, you know, needs to think about them for themselves to a certain extent, not not to cop out on the answer, but <laughs> uh, but you know, everybody kind of defines these terms a little bit differently. But um, you know, I I think the. And what's interesting is that there's, you know, for spirituality and religiousness, I mean, there's certainly a lot of overlap. A lot of people who are religious are also spiritual. Uh, and uh, and typically the spiritual tends to refer a little bit more to the personal experience um, and uh, and the pursuit of something kind of greater than the selves, very, very broadly defined. Religions, one of the defining characteristics, I guess, is that is that there's a group of people who say this is what it means to be Jewish, Catholic, you know, whatever. Um, so they kind of identify what it is and what it means. But um, but there's a lot of overlap. And when I do these kinds of exercises with students, I say, how would you define these terms? Um, somebody will say, well, spirituality is the experience of it. Somebody else, oh, well, wait a minute, you know, religion, there, there's religious experience too. 
Um, somebody say, well, it's, you know, it's, it's about the individual versus the group, but then somebody will say, but, but wait a minute, spirituality can also be a group. It could be a group of people meditating. And then religion often can be, you know, one person sitting in their room praying or something like that. So, so there, there gets to be this great overlap. And actually, uh, you know, when you look at surveys of people and how they describe themselves, as I mentioned, probably like, if you look at the United States, maybe about two thirds or so, will say that they are both religious and spiritual. Um, but you have a growing group of individuals, maybe about 20% who say that they are spiritual, but not religious. They don't want to feel that they're tied to a given tradition, but they are, they're, they're searching. They're, they're trying to understand a greater meaning and purpose in life. They're trying to understand their connection to something greater than the self. Um, so that has that spiritual piece to it, which is not necessarily part of a, a formalized approach that might be called a religion. And uh, of course, you have people who are religious and not spiritual, which is interesting. Um, I think one of the, the types of people that I sometimes think about in that context are, for example, uh, like a cultural Jewish individual who, you know, doesn't necessarily believe in mm. the religion, doesn't believe even in God per se, but follows a lot of the the, the precepts and and does uh you know uh, follows the sabbath maybe keeps the laws of kosher or something like that because it's it's part of what connects them to their family or to their community along those lines uh and then of course the the fourth category are, are the people who are more atheistic or agnostic who will say I, i'm neither religious nor spiritual and um and then even and the last thing i'll say about this is that you know even when it comes to an atheist um you know a lot of people do have a a spiritual sense which is not necessarily a supernatural sense so um, it could be something through music or creativity or, you know, taking a walk in the mountains or something like that and feeling connected to nature. Uh, all of ways of kind of connecting to ourselves and connecting to the universe in ways that are different, but not necessarily invoking um, something which is truly supernatural. So, uh, you know, again, this is, we, 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 in fact, um, a, a new, the, the next book that I have coming out is going to be called The Varieties of Spiritual Experience. And, and here again, we're going to be using a lot of people's descriptions and narratives about what the, what they mean by spirituality and what is the the broad array of what spirituality is all about so uh we understand it a little bit but we're it, it's a massive uh, area a massive field of scholarship and, and a lot more needs to be learned that's that's very cool and that that title is uh, uh harkens back to uh william james right okay Right. And, and I mean, that was really what started it was we wanted to do kind of a, you know, an updated version, if you will, of the of the William James varieties of religious experience about 100 years ago. And here we now have 100 years of uh, of new information and brain scans and, and surveys and all kinds of data and scientific approaches that really have advanced a lot of what he was talking about. So this gives us kind of this new perspective. And, and we decided to go with spiritual experiences because we wanted to explain how it could be even broader uh, than, um, than, than what uh, James was actually talking about, so. Great, yeah, well, that, that's a good, um, good foundation for us to lay uh, because the bulk of what I want to ask you about today is really um, wh what the brain is doing, what it looks like during uh, specific uh, spiritual practices, whether that's prayer or mindfulness meditation or other forms of meditation. Um, so I'm wondering if we can just kind of jump into that. Um, I guess 
we could start with how prayer and mindfulness are different in the brain, or maybe just what are some of the prominent changes that occur with um, perhaps short-term or long-term prayer or meditation? I know that's kind of a monster of a question, but uh, I'll let you tackle it. That may take us the rest of the show, actually. <laughs> yeah, um, good. <laughs> uh, well, I, you know, I think there's a couple of overarching points and, and we'll start with that and then, you know, we can get into whatever details you'd like. Um, you know, first of all, I, I think an important point is, is that uh, all of the data to me points to the fact that there's not just one part of our brain that is the spiritual part of our brain. There's not one part of our brain that lights up or turns on or whatever when we meditate or pray. It, it ultimately is many different parts of the brain. And that really shouldn't come as a, as a huge surprise to people, I think, because when you actually think about the practices that people do, the beliefs that they hold, um, they involve a lot of different things. Uh, so, and what I mean by that is, I mean, uh, somebody could be spiritual and it's very, it's a very emotional process for them. Somebody could be spiritual and it's a very cognitive, you know, they're thinking about consciousness and the, the world in certain ways, meaning and purpose. Um, it could be experiential, something that they felt or perceived when they were in nature or, or, or when they were meditating or praying or something like that. So we have our experiences, all the different emotions that we have, a whole array of different possible cognitive processes that might be part of that. And uh, and so depending on, on what a person is doing and thinking and feeling, um, we would expect to see different kinds of changes. And again, to just give like a specific example to that, um, if somebody is meditating on a prayer, for example, versus meditating on the image of a candle, for example, um, they're going to activate different parts of the brain. The person meditating on the prayer is going to be activating the verbal areas of the brain. And, and we've seen this with some of our brain scan studies. The person who's looking at a candle or imagining you know, the image of a candle uh, is going to activate the, the visual areas of the brain. So they're, you know, depending on exactly what somebody's doing, there could be a lot of different kinds of changes that are going on in the brain. Now, ultimately, they may both feel a sense of joy, they may feel a sense of oneness. And uh, if they both feel that sense of oneness, we might expect to see the same brain areas being involved. Um, but so, but again, you know, even that could be distinct if the oneness is with God versus the universe versus with consciousness or something like that. So, so part of what we've been doing over the last 20 to 30 years is, is studying a whole array of different kinds of practices and the experiences that come out of those practices so that we can try to better understand which parts of the brain are involved. But as I mentioned, I think, uh, maybe the simplest way of answering your question is that it really can involve almost the entire brain all the different parts of our brain get involved and uh, I'm in a center of integrative medicine so our brain is intimately connected with our body and so uh, and, and there's been some really interesting discussions and models that have including our own which incorporates the autonomic nervous system that regulates our kind of arousal and as well as our calming or quiescent sides of our body and uh, and they all get involved so um, if there's kind of a spiritual part of ourselves it's our whole it's our whole self and uh, and that to me is what what's very exciting and has generally fallen out of all of the research that we have done looking at these kinds of brain scan studies that's really fascinating um yeah so so i guess well would you say is there is there any kind of um prominent uh common change that occurs across these practices that is distinct to um, spirituality or religion as opposed to anything else we could be doing with our brains? Sure. Well, you know, so um, 
one of the books that we wrote was um, How Enlightenment Changes Your Brain, which try to focus on some of these more intense experiences. And um, one of the things that we kind of came to in exploring not just uh, all of our brain scans, but the qualitative experiences that people have and the, the descriptions of those experiences, um, we came up with about five core elements of these spiritual experiences. And and to just step back before we get into that in a little bit more detail, one of the important points about all of this is that there does seem to be something about these experiences that people identify as spiritual. So, you know, th there is this distinction that seems to occur in our brain that says, ah, you know, I just had something that was a spiritual experience, which is distinguished from what our everyday reality kinds of experiences are. So then the question is, well, what is it exactly? Um, especially if we're still using the same parts of our brain. And, um, and I think that was where we got into thinking about this in the, from the perspective of several core components of these experiences. So um, this is not in any particular order, but uh, one of them is uh, a sense of oneness that we mentioned a few minutes ago. So that sense of being connected to something greater than the self, God, the universe, or whatever. Uh, the area of the brain that we think is involved in this uh, most likely is an area of the brain in the back part, uh, the parietal lobe, which normally takes our sensory information and helps us to create our spatial representation of ourself. And so we had proposed many years ago that when people engage in a meditation practice, um, part of what happens to them is that they preferentially decrease the activity in this parietal lobe. So if the area normally turns on to give us our sense of self, uh, then as it starts to quiet down, we lose that sense of self. We, we lose the boundary between ourself and the rest of the world. And, uh, and that's exactly what we've seen in these experiences, that there's a decrease of parietal lobe activity. And of course, again, I mean, I think ultimately there's a continuum because we can lose ourselves in music or painting or something like that. But there, this seems to be a more profound you know, sense of oneness that overwhelms the person. Um, and that's maybe leads into the, the second component, which is what I would refer to as the sense of intensity. Um, there's something about these experiences that are beyond our everyday reality experiences. There's, these are the most whatever experience that a person has had, the most beautiful music, the most intense feeling of oneness, the most powerful feeling of love, you know, whatever it is. And, and when we look at these descriptions that people have, they use words like that, you know, infinite, uh, most powerful, incredible. Uh, so, you know, clearly there's something intense about these experiences. And while, you know, we're not entirely sure where that comes from uh, in the brain, one of the main areas that we've been looking at uh, is the limbic system. So the limbic system is involved in our in our emotions and uh, turns on when anything of importance happens in in, our, in the world. So um, so it makes sense then that these areas of the brain, which not only signify what's important to us, but ultimately write those into our memory as something that's very important for us to remember. Um, we think that that has a lot to do with, with the limbic system and the limbic system in particular has been activated uh, during a lot of these kinds of practices. So we have, we have one, we have a sense of unity, we have a sense of intensity. Um, the third component is a sense of clarity. And uh, what that is, is that that's, that's where people say, you know, for the first time in my life, I, I get it. You know, like I understand the world, I understand who I am, I understand God, what, whatever it is. Um, it's like they, they get it now, you know, they have a new way of thinking about the world. It's often a kind of paradigmatic shift for them. Um, and, and which, which actually, you know, is another component that we'll talk about in a second, which is this transformation. 
Um, but in the moment, there's the, it, it's, everything becomes clear to the person. And uh, again, you know, we're not entirely sure, but one of the areas of the brain that we think may be particularly involved in this um, is a very central structure called the thalamus. And that helps to connect different parts of the brain to each other. It helps to bring sensory information uh, up into the brain. And so we think the thalamus may be particularly relevant in, in helping people kind of rework the ways in which they think about the world and uh, and create that sense of clarity but that that sense of clarity could be an emotional sense of clarity it could be a cognitive it could be both uh but certainly something that that makes it very clear for the person the fourth component is a sense of surrender for lack of a better term um what we mean by this is that the person you know may have been going down a path like we were talking about myself you know exploring a question meditating praying following a religion or something like that but eventually when you get to this experience of enlightenment um you feel like you are taken over by the experience you know you're not making it happen it's something that's happening to you you're kind of along for the ride as, mm -hmm. as they would say and uh where we think that goes on is in the frontal lobes so when we start a meditation practice or do a prayer practice and we're concentrating on it the frontal lobes typically become more active. And we again, we've seen that in our brain scan studies. But when somebody has an experience where they surrender themselves, where they kind of give their own willfulness and purposefulness over to the experience, then their frontal lobes actually shut down. And again, we've seen that occur in a number of, of practices where that is the principal experience. Like in Islamic prayer, you know, the whole concept of Islam is, is to surrender oneself. And so when you surrender to God, um, the frontal lobe structures begin to quiet down. And we see that as part of what's going on in the brain of those individuals. And so that is the fourth very important component. And then uh, the fifth component, which isn't so much part of the experience itself, those first four are actually like the experience itself, um, but it's sort of the aftermath, which is the transformation. It really, it changes who the person is fundamentally. And one of the things that we uh, did in the survey that we had of about 2000 experiences, um, we asked people, you know, what, what changes occurred as the result of having this experience. And, you know, close to 90% of people would tell you that their sense of meaning and purpose improved, their sense of spirituality and religiousness improved. Um, they no longer feared death. Uh, their relationships got better. Their health got better. Um, so, you know, they felt like it was an overwhelming shift in who they were. And, um, and this transformational element uh, component of these experiences to me is also a really important part of what these experiences are all about. So, you know, you have, and and it, it kind of came up in the, in the book, how enlightenment changes your brain because enlightenment has kind of two meanings. One is the moment, which is, you know, what does a person feel when it happens? But then you can be in a state of enlightenment. You know, you can have this sort of perpetual change in who you are as an individual. And uh, and that that again, you know, gets kind of borne out, you know, even in some of our brain scan studies, uh, you asked about this a little while ago, where, you know, we see changes in the moment of the practice, but then we also see changes that occur on a more permanent basis, even when the brain is at rest and not meditating or praying, um, there are changes in the brain when people go through these experiences. Wow, and that, that's that's fascinating because the the enlightenment experiences um, must be on a kind of the the extreme end of of these uh, spiritual experiences. Like, not everybody who meditates or prays the first time is going to have one of these. Right. Um, but uh, but I mean, 
and I, I want to return to your point about the frontal lobes uh, in just a little bit, but um, to your point about these kind of more permanent changes and maybe more on the side of uh, normal range of, of meditative experiences, normal sorts of meditation, um, in your course, The Spiritual Brain, uh, which was back from 2012, so this will be more than 10 years old, I guess, at this point. Hard um, to believe. <laughs> <laughs> um, it doesn't sound that way, by the way. I think I know. definitely recommend it to people. Um, but uh, so I, I just wanted to quote something you said from it um, when you're talking about a study that you were involved in where you had participants doing a particular form of meditation called Kirtan Kriya. Right. Um, and so you, you had them do it and correct me if I'm wrong on this, but uh, once a day for eight weeks and correct. it takes about 12 minutes to do it. That's right. And it showed improvements in verbal memory, I believe uh, decreases in stress, anxiety, and depression, and then uh, increased resting frontal lobe activity. Was correct. That? Okay. That's correct. Yep. And, and you said, uh, so I'm just going to quote you here. You said, if a secular version of a meditation practice that people did for only 12 minutes a day for eight weeks caused these kinds of changes, can you imagine the changes that occur when people engage in a truly meaningful religious or spiritual practice for years and years? The effect should be incredibly profound. So, um, yeah, so I, I just guess wanted to discuss that a little bit. And then sure. I've, I've got a couple follow up <laughs> questions for you on that one. Yeah. Well, no, I, I mean that, you know, to, to a certain extent, what we were just talking about, um, you know, there's, uh, but, but you're bringing up an interesting um, differentiation, so to speak. One is what is the benefit of doing a practice for long periods of time and how does that change us over long periods of time? And, and in many ways it does. And, and the Kirtan Kriya study that we did, you know, documented that over that, you know, two month period. Uh, which is what led us to say, you know, gee, imagine, you know, what a, a monk or a nun who's doing deeply religious meditation or practices for hours a day for 20, 30 years. Um, it's really going to change the way their brain operates. And, uh, and, and again, you know, we have seen evidence for that. Uh, but, um, but what, so uh, one of the answers to your question too, is that, you know, a lot of people who are thinking about this, um, needs to try to figure out exactly what their goals are of a practice. And, you know, when we did the Kirtan Kriya study, it was really just about reducing stress and improving cognition. And so doing a simple practice like that can actually have a pretty dramatic effect on that. Um, for people who are striving for enlightenment, for spiritual, you know, uh, to, to get to some kind of spiritual experience, uh, mystical experience or something like that, uh, here, one of the things I think we have to differentiate is the meditation or the practice or the prayer practice itself versus the experience that might arise out of it. And so somebody could, uh, as you were mentioning earlier, I mean, somebody could meditate for many, many years and, and never achieve enlightenment. Um, other people may meditate for very short periods of time and have some kind of very intense experience. So on one hand, we never know exactly when they're going to occur. And what what our ongoing data has showed is that that these practices do help to facilitate changes in the brain that facilitate or predispose us to these experiences. And actually, um, one of the studies that we did uh, uh, more recently was where we sent people through a spiritual retreat program. It was a very immersive, very intense program, which was relatively short. It was about a, a one-week program that was based off of the spiritual exercises of St. Ignatius, the, the founder of the Jesuit tradition, 
Um, and, uh, and we actually did a study looking not just at areas of the brain and in terms of brain activity, but we looked at different neurotransmitters. And what we found was, was that the brain became more sensitive to the effects of neurotransmitters such as dopamine and serotonin. Wow. So that means that if they have a release of dopamine in the brain, their brain's going to have a greater response. And dopamine does cause this very positive emotional kind of response as does uh, serotonin. So, you know, getting back to your question then, um, what we think is happening is, is that these practices, especially when it has a great deal of meaning for the person, when it's something that the person does over and over again, really changes the brain in very dramatic ways. It can have, uh, you know, more clinically oriented effects in terms of uh, cognition, um, emotional regulation, and so forth. And there's a lot of other studies that have looked at, you know, practices like mindfulness, for example, and showed its ability to help people regulate their emotions. Um, but again, I, I think it also helps to, to predispose people to having very intense spiritual experiences because it kind of primes the brain. It sets it up so that you can have this very powerful kind of experience. And, uh, and, and theoretically, the more you do the practice, the more likely you may be of, of having those kinds of experiences. Wow, that, that is incredible. Um, that point about the neurotransmitters, it just never occurred to me that that would be possible. Um, but uh, I guess um, I got a couple different questions on that one. Um, I guess we'll start with this one. So if is there are there any examples you can think of of people um, meditating on negative or, or damaging or even like evil ideas that uh, lead them in a lead to negative consequences or, or anything like that kind of a yeah. Odd question, but um, well, no, actually, it's a really important question that um, has not gotten a lot of attention yet, and and is something that I actually hope is a real important part of the the future of neurotheology uh, as a field, which is the the negative side of things. And uh, we know that there's a you know negativity that occurs. Um, you know, you're talking about something very specific about you know actually purposely meditating on something <laughs> negative. Uh, and we'll talk about that in a second. But but certainly people can have very negative views about God. Um, we see this in the healthcare setting sometimes when people get cancer or, you know, that they feel God is punishing them because of their immoral behaviors from before. Um, and of course, if somebody thinks that God is punishing them, then they're going to be less likely to want to try to get better or try to do therapies or whatever. So, uh, and, and the same is true, um, you know, with people with like psychiatric disorders, depression, substance abuse, and so forth. In fact, that's why some of the more powerfully effective, um, therapies for substance abuse, like Alcoholics Anonymous, invokes this higher power concept and invokes this, uh, invokes this idea of sort of, you know, a spiritual part of the person uh, as a way of trying to help them to overcome uh, whatever issues that they may be facing. So, um, so that's definitely, you know, an important part of it. But, you know, the idea of kind of, you know, actually, you know, actively striving for something more negative is interesting in and of itself. And I, I think, you know, the two examples that I always think about, uh, one are cults and cult behavior, um, which, you know, again, maybe for the person at the time, they feel like it's something very positive, but often, unfortunately, a lot of times they lead to very negative behaviors and sometimes committing mass suicide or something like that. We've seen those examples. Uh, and then the other, which is um, also, you know, pretty prevalent in the world today, which are people who turn towards terrorism and violence and, you know, destruction to, you know, in the name of God, in the name of their particular uh, spiritual or, or religious beliefs. 
And so, you know, here too, I think, you know, people are, you know, what is it about those perspectives that may be intriguing for a given individual? What is it that, you know, a person goes to the ISIS website and says, gee, that, that sounds good. You know, I, that, I'd like to blow up people who don't believe the way I do. Um, so, you know, what is it about a person who kind of moves down that path? And, and is it something that, you know, they move down that path right away? Uh, is it something that occurs over time? Uh, and, and certainly we know that some of the ritualistic practices and so forth that are part of these approaches, uh, cult behavior and terrorism and things like that, um, to kind of engender that experience uh, and those beliefs can be very, very powerful. In fact, um, one of the, the quotes that I often go back to from my old mentor and my, one of the early work uh, that we had done was that, that ritual is a morally neutral technology and rituals mm. have been used you know, worldwide for wonderful things and bringing people together and singing and holding hands and, and creating a, a wonderful feeling of community and love. Uh, and also for, you know, to great ill and, uh, and destruction. And, you know, whether it's the Nazis who used rituals extraordinarily effectively, or, you know, again, what we see in cult behavior or other types of really negative behavior. Um, what it ultimately is kind of doing, I think, is that it, it creates a sense of connection and a sense of oneness. Now, normally we think, okay, well, you know, what's wrong with that? Um, the the issue or the answer to the question, what's wrong with that, is that I think a lot of time it has to do with what one feels connected to. And, and it doesn't have to be, you could be one person and feel connected to the world, and you could be a group of people and be only connected to the group. Uh, so again, it's not just you know, what you are or, or in what context you are, but it's the beliefs themselves that are part of it. And if you feel that you are connected to all of humanity, then that ritual and those beliefs engender a sense of openness and oneness and connectedness, uh, you know, with everyone and a sense of compassion to every person that you meet. Uh, on the other hand, if the ritual connects you only to the group, then that group becomes the reality for that individual. And mm -hmm. so anything which is outside of that, that doesn't believe in that, um, that almost becomes an unreal thing. I mean, and, and for that individual, they might view that as unreal. They might view it as evil. Uh, and of course, if you now have somebody over there who's saying, no, 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 you know, you're wrong, I'm right, then they may look at that individual and say, no, the, you know, that person needs to be destroyed, killed, whatever. Um, that belief needs to be erased because um, it, it really represents something which is not real. And, and why would they keep saying it if, it, if it's not real? Um, so I think, you know, that to me is part and parcel of, of how this may occur, but it also obviously starts to engender fairly violent beliefs and, uh, and behaviors in people. And, and we, you know, we've, we've started to think about this a little bit, but it, it really is intriguing to try to understand what those effects are and, and goes back into even things like neurotransmitters, um, and how different parts of the brain are operating that might lead somebody down a path that is truly negative versus those people who go down paths that are very positive. And, uh, and, and hopefully this gives us an opportunity to find a way of, um, of, of thinking about how we can redirect people into more positive ways of thinking uh, down the road. Wow, wow. Yeah, dangerous stuff there. Um, so the other, the other thing I wanted to ask about uh, regarding the, the Kirtan Kriya study and, and some of these other studies that you mentioned um, is uh, you mentioned that you kind of secularized it and took out uh, some of the more um, explicitly religious or, or mystical aspects of it. And I'm wondering if, 
would that apply would that be able to be applied to a a, a prayer for instance so it, will an atheist like myself uh doing a, a religious prayer get the same benefits as a believer will i will my brain look the same i, I suppose it, it probably wouldn't but um is there any evidence that that even very religious prayers done by someone who doesn't believe uh would they still get a benefit from it um yeah so we do have a little bit of evidence about that and, and it even kind of comes back to the quote that you read out of the spiritual brain book uh, or a, a video uh, lecture series which is the that um i guess the best way to answer your question is is that the more a person believes in whatever it is that they're doing um the stronger the effect most likely is going to be so um you know we did a research study on the rosary and showed that the rosary helped to reduce anxiety in people but that's really only going to be true for people who are catholic and who like to do the rosary so you wouldn't tell a jewish person or an atheist um hey here's a research study that shows that the rosary reduces anxiety you should do that because it doesn't have any meaning to you and and again you know the data would actually probably show just the opposite as well i mean people we mm -hmm. do know that when people can have what would be referred to as kind of a religious struggle you know they're trying to think about something that they don't agree with or they're they're struggling in their own mind about what's right and what's wrong or what they should be doing or what they should be leaving um then then you actually have an increase in stress and uh, anxiety and depression for people so uh, you know that's why i think it really does have to be tailored to a given individual and whether that's secularizing a given practice for people who you know are not of that tradition like yoga classes and and mindfulness and so forth which can be done you know pretty much by anybody uh, irrespective of you know whatever beliefs or non-beliefs they may have um but um but again i you know we do have some brain scans where we had people just kind of do the practice or do a practice that they don't really care about versus do a practice that they really do care about or, and and do it very fully and and there's clearly much more of a shift in the brain function so um you know it is something that a person really needs to uh, connect with and feel good about and you know that, that probably shouldn't be a surprise i mean if, if people you know if you like to listen to music to make you feel relaxed um you know if, if you don't like uh heavy metal then you you wouldn't be listening to heavy metal to make you feel good about that um you know uh, on the other hand you know if you like heavy metal and and somebody says here why don't you listen to this easy listening stuff it's probably going to irritate you so um you know so very much it has to do with where you're headed you know what your own personal interests and beliefs and and uh you know what you like and don't like uh in, in, in terms of whatever stimuli or practices that you're going to do. So, so when I do talk to people about um, thinking about a practice, um, while you know most research has shown that these practices have been beneficial for people, uh, I do tell them to take stock in who you are as a person, what do you like to do, what are your beliefs, what are your goals, and then try to find a practice that that is consistent with that. And so, you know, if you happen to be, you know, a Catholic individual, then maybe doing the rosary on a daily basis would be a great thing for you. Uh, on the other hand, if you um, are an atheist, then, you know, searching for mindfulness or, or doing something out in nature or doing something creative will probably be far more beneficial for you, obviously, than doing something that has any kind of particular religious perspective. Yeah, that that makes a lot of sense. That analogy to music is hits home because I uh, just described my brother and I. He's a huge metal fan, and I'm more of an easy listening guy. Um, 
So uh, kind of returning to some of these brain changes, you mentioned uh, that, that especially during those enlightenment experiences that frontal lobe activity goes down and that that's correlated with a reduced sense of self um, or I'm sorry, sense of uh, what? Surrender. Uh, surrender, correct. Mm -hmm. uh, so um, it, is that uh, generally the frontal lobes or is there anything specific to the prefrontal cortex? Um, I'm, I'm uh, interested because I'm, I'm doing a little project on the prefrontal cortex right now and just want to get your perspective on that. Yeah, uh, I mean, it is a, a little bit more specific for the prefrontal cortex. Um, but again, you know, it depends a little bit too on what the person is doing. If it is a more verbally based practice, then it could include things like Broca's areas, some of the language, you know, production areas. Um, if it's more about emotional regulation, it can be some of the, the inferior parts of the frontal lobe, um, but definitely the prefrontal cortex. We, we've always kind of talked about that as being a, a fundamentally important part. It helps to regulate emotional responses as far as the limbic system goes. Uh, so absolutely. I mean, that, that's definitely a fundamental part of it. Yeah. So is it, um, it's interesting because is it the case that it always, its activity always goes down during during meditation or prayer, and I know those are, can be quite different from each other, but say during mindfulness meditation, um, does the, the PFC activity usually go down? Well, yeah, I mean, it, it can it can do either. Uh, you know, it can go up if it's a very, um, you know, sort of a concentration-based kind of practice. Um, it can go down if it is more of a, just sort of letting yourself go. Um, and, and it can, it can fluctuate. And I mean, that in and of itself is actually a really important, uh, concept. I think that, that people sometimes miss when it comes to the discussion about meditation, which is that it's a dynamic process. And if you, you know, sit down to meditate right now and you meditate for an hour, what your brain is doing in the first five minutes of that hour is going to be completely different than what your brain is doing in the last five minutes of that hour and, you know, where it may shift and so forth. Uh, and then again, you know, you could have some really amazing experience at some point in the midst of all of that. And that can have a significant impact on what's going on in the brain and vice versa. So, um, so yeah, I mean, I, you know, I think the frontal lobes are generally going to be involved, but exactly how and, and when and where uh, that does depend a little bit uh, or a lot of it uh, uh, on uh, what kind of practice you're doing and what the goals are and, and what you're experiencing. That, that totally makes sense. A dynamic system really. And yeah. Um, in fact, in fact, I mean, just to, to, to pick up on that, I mean, in, in the Enlightenment book, I mean, what we proposed, and, you know, we haven't fully, you know, been able to, to prove this yet, um, but what we think is actually going on, it gets back to a little bit to this idea of the predisposition thing, which is that um, uh, what I think might be happening is that it's not so much where your brain is at a given moment in time, but how your brain is changing. Uh, through that time period, through that dynamic process. And, you know, the example that I sometimes use is that, uh, you know, like if, if you're sitting on an, in, in an airplane uh, on the ground, you don't feel like anything's happening. If you're sitting in an airplane uh, up at 35,000 feet, uh, barring uh, turbulence, you don't really feel like you're moving very much. Um, when do you feel you're moving? Well, you feel like you're moving when you're taking off or when you're landing because there's a shift there's the acceleration and the deceleration that's when you feel something so if that's the case for the brain then it may not actually be whether the brain is has an overactive frontal lobe or an underactive frontal lobe 
but how it shifts. And if we think about that in the context of meditation practices, if meditation practices normally kind of ratchet up your frontal lobe function um, as you sort of go up, then at some point when you do finally kind of lose yourself or surrender yourself, um, it's coming way down and maybe, you know, goes even into the, into the, to the decreased uh, activity territory. And again, you know, another analogy that I sometimes use is that, uh, you know, if you, if you walk up like one step or two steps, then you jump down, not much happens. If you uh, are standing on the edge of a pool that's been emptied and you jump 10 feet, you know, in, you know, you jump in and it's, it's 10 feet down, um, you're going to feel something when you hit the ground. I mean, falling 10 feet is, is going to hurt. Um, if you climb up a ladder 20 feet you know, or 10 feet and then you jump down 10 feet, now you're falling 20 feet and, you know, something really big is going to happen to you, usually bad in this case. But um, so, you know, in the context of the brain, if if you increase the activity in the brain 10% and then you go down to a drop of 10%, you know, that's a 20% change in the brain. That's pretty substantial. And that may you know, account for these kinds of experiences, the moment of that experience that kind of takes you from one place to another in the, in the practice. So that that's part and parcel how we've been starting to think a little bit about this too, which is that again, it's not just being in one place or another as far as your brain goes, but it may be the shifts of activity, the release of a dopamine, the, you know, it's not just if there's dopamine there, but it's suddenly the influx of dopamine and the activation of those neurons, which is causing the change, not just that the neurons are activated, but how they're kind of starting to turn themselves on. Wow. Wow. That, yeah, that, that's very interesting. Kind of the, the acceleration points are really what matters the, um, in the, in the plane analogy there, the yeah. acceleration and deceleration. <laughs> um, that's, that's very cool. Um, so I guess so far we've been talking really about pretty much at at the individual level or that the average um, from studies looking at individuals. Uh, and I kind of want to transition to a little bit more of the, the population level or um, thinking about uh, if, if somebody is more or, or less spiritual, more or less religious, what kind of an effect does that have on um, different measures? So to be concrete, um, does being more religious or more spiritual lead to better health outcomes? Um, well, you know, it's interesting. Uh, you know, if you do look at large data samples and, you know, they study 2,000, 3,000 people, um, the, the, the general answer has been yes, um, that people who are more religious, uh, more spiritual as part of their lives tend to, to do better overall in terms of their both their mental and physical health. Um, now, you know, first of all, the, the one important caveat is to say that, you know, there's plenty of very religious people who die, you know, young, and there's plenty of atheists who live to a hundred. So, um, you know, it's, you can't just <laughs> take that in, in, uh, you know, in one way or the other. Um, the other thing is that, you know, it, the, the, I think part of the answer to the question too, is the mechanisms by which this happens. So, uh, I tend to like to refer to the mechanisms by which this may occur, uh, as being either direct versus indirect. And by indirect, what I mean is that a lot of people who are religious are doing things as part of their tradition, which have ancillary health benefits. So for example, just the social interaction, um, you know, going to a church or a synagogue or whatever, when you're with other people, all, you know, huge amounts of research have shown that those people who have the strongest social support networks um, do the best as far as their health, mental, as well as physical health. So that in and of itself is very important. 
um, it's not it's not being religious necessarily, but it's having that group of people who who supports you, who can come and help you out, who can you know do all these things. Um, another uh, indirect mechanism are dietary changes. And so, for example, if you're a Hindu and you decide to become a vegetarian, um, you know, a lot of research nowadays shows that people who eat plant based diets are healthier than people who eat a lot of pro you know proteins from from meats, especially red meats. So, um, you know, you wind up with a health benefit, not because you're a Hindu, but because you're following a dietary program that you could follow anyway. I mean, anybody can be a vegetarian um, and, uh, and, and derive that ancillary benefit too. Now, the more direct uh, mechanisms have to do, I think, more with spiritual practices um, like meditation and prayer like meditation and prayer, like we were just talking about, that they have this beneficial effect on lowering, uh, you know, on regulating your emotions, lowering your stress, anxiety, and that helps to improve your immune system and so forth. And, uh, and so, you know, I think that there are some very direct mechanisms there. And then um, the other direct mechanism, which, you know, this is the one that we don't fully know about, uh, although there's another, there's an interesting um, sort of corollary to it, which is, you know, just whether being in, you know, spiritual has an inherent value for people. Um, and the closest, I think, um, sort of, you know, uh, corollary to that is that there have been some studies that show that people who are optimistic do better than other people. So, you know, people who, who think that the world is a good place, that think that outcomes in, in their life are going to be good, have better health outcomes. And whether or not being a spiritual person makes you more optimistic or has something, you know, like that feeling of positivity and so forth, um, may have a very, you know, may confer some direct benefit to an individual um, as, as part of that process. But, uh, but again, you know, uh, there's plenty of room for people who are not religious and spiritual. And, um, and I think ultimately, you know, even if you don't have a, a specific tradition that you're going to adhere to, um, doing things that connect you to the world, that connect you to others, that help you feel creative, that lower your stress, you know, even if it doesn't have to have a, a supernatural uh, concept, still can be very beneficial for an individual. And that that spiritual part of the person, um, I think, is something that uh, really is something that could be fostered for people irrespective of what their beliefs are. Okay, yeah. Yeah, that, that definitely makes sense. Um, I see we're, we're nearing our time here. So I'm going to uh, just ask a, a few quick questions, and we'll, we'll get through these. Um, so uh, this one, do you know, is there a relationship between the degree of religiousness in a society and outcomes like, uh, I mean, I guess we could go many different directions with this, but maybe health outcomes of the society or economic, or do you know of any of these kind of large scale social uh, um, effects? Well, you know, I, I don't know if anybody's ever done a study to show that, um, you know, societies that are more religious, um, you know, lit, survive longer or whatever. Um, I will say this, uh, which to me, I think has always been something that I've noted is that if you look at human history, um, I'm not aware of any civilization that ever arose without a religious or spiritual perspective, um, whether it was the Egyptians and the pharaohs, whether it was uh, the, the gods of Mesopotamia, whether it, you know, um, whether it's the Greeks or the Romans, um, there has always been a religious or spiritual component to that. Now, um, you know, whether or not that 
helps to foster a sense of community, a sense of morals, a sense of purpose. Um, not sure, but uh, you know, again, I, I have rarely, if ever, heard of any um, civilization that you know um, that arose without it. I mean, sometimes you know, as we're seeing in today's world, a lot of um, countries now, you know, many more people within them are becoming atheist and agnostic and so forth. That's different, but um, actually arising uh, and uh, and forming. Uh, frequently uh, have been, or almost universally have had some kind of religious or spiritual component to it. Um, another way of looking at your question, which is, you know, for the individuals in there, uh, in, in those societies, um, it does really depend on sort of how their individual beliefs are aligned with the societal beliefs. So for example, um, if you are a Jewish person, um, if you're living in Israel, uh, as a Jewish person, you're probably, you know, if, if you're a religious person, you're probably going to do pretty well because there's there's a correlation between that. Um, if you were a Jewish person living in the old Soviet Union where you were persecuted for being Jewish, well, then your 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 overall outcomes were much worse, and your level of depression and anxiety and stress and health uh, were much worse. So, uh, so there is a relationship between the people in a given society and what that society either supports or doesn't support. Um, so, but uh, the bottom line is that if you're kind of aligned with that uh, belief system, then you're probably gonna be doing okay. And if you're not aligned with it, then it's gonna be much more problematic for you. I see, okay. All right, well, that that definitely makes sense. Um, all right, well, uh, we'll end on, a, on an easy question. Um, I've been- <laughs> I don't asking... know if there are any easy questions <laughs> in this area. <laughs> uh, well, this is actually uh, totally zooming out. This is about the brain in general, um, and it is not really an easy question, but uh, I've been asking all my my guests, my neuroscientist guests about um, what would be your long elevator pitch answer to the question, how does the brain work? Uh, well, um, you know, on one hand, uh, we can look at all of these, you know, neurotransmitters and brain activity patterns and electrical changes and all that. And, uh, you know, we, we have learned so much about how the brain works and operates. But I, if, if you're getting at the question, which I think you're getting, which is similar to what I pose to all my students, I say, well, look, uh, you know, you've got sodium and potassium rushing across the cell membranes, you have neurons activating, you have serotonin and dopamine and other neurotransmitters all flowing back and forth. You have billions and billions of neurons, quadrillions and quadrillions of connections, you know, where in all of that is your thought, you know, where in all of that is your, your mind, your consciousness. Um, and the short answer is we have no idea. So, um, you know, the, the, the big picture would be, you know, can we chip away at that in some way? Can we learn something about where, uh, within our brains is our mind? Um, and, uh, or, or is the mind and consciousness as, as we get into these big philosophical questions and, you know, is, is it something that is somehow separated from the brain in some way? Uh, or uh, what I sometimes like to think is that they're just two different ways of looking at the same thing. Um, and, uh, you know, a little bit like the wave particle duality in quantum mechanics, you know, if you kind of look for mental processes, you find the subjective experience. And if you look for biological processes, you can find that with the brain scan, but, um, exactly where and how it all works uh, is still a mystery. And uh, that's uh, what gives all of us uh, something to do for the next uh, 100 years. Indeed. All right. At least. At least. <laughs> yeah. All right. Well, um, 
thank you so much for uh, for talking with me today. It's it's been really fascinating, and I I can't wait to uh, for your new book. Um, and uh, would you like to kind of tell people where they can find you and and all that? Sure, sure. Uh, I mean, the best way to to get in touch with me or to look at our research projects or learn about the new books and so forth that'll be coming out is just my website. It's just Andrew Newberg, N-E-W-B-E-R-G.com. And uh, they can get all kinds of information. And, uh, and there's also uh, a way of connecting with me as well. All right. Fantastic. Um, thank you again. I'll uh, let you go here. But uh, thanks again. Thank you. Appreciate it. All right. Talk to you soon. All right. Take care. All right. Well, that is it. Thank you so much for listening or watching this episode of the Thinking Tools podcast from Sense of Mind. Be sure to like and subscribe to the YouTube channel and the podcast. And also consider giving this show a five-star rating on whatever podcast platform you use. As always, this channel is brought to you by the Diamond Mind Foundation. This episode was written and produced by me, Andrew Cooper Sansone. Thank you so much for watching. I'll catch you next time.